0: Welcome to The Queer SLP.
1: A podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional.
0: Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues.
1: The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories.
0: All right, everybody, welcome to The Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him.
1: And I'm Natalie, and my pronouns are she, her.
0: And we are joined by two special guests. If you'd like to introduce yourself, let's start with Jim. Hi, I'm Jim, and my pronouns
1: are he, him. Hi, Jim. Hi. And who else do we have? <laughs> Hi,
0: I'm Elisa, and my pronouns are she, hers. Awesome. Well, welcome to the Queer SLP, another fun episode we have for you here. We have something unique to share with all of you. So we're here as part of a multi-generational group of individuals. I'll start. I am a representative of the millennial generation.
1: (laughs) Which means what year were you born in? (laughs) I was born in 1987. 1987. Okay. Um, And I'm a a Gen Xer. I was born in 1979. What about you, Jim?
2: Well, I am on the tail end of the baby boomer, so I'm your age incarnate here. I was born in 1962.
3: (laughs)
1: 1962.
4: (laughs)
0: And I was born in 1997. Oh, right. So we have 1962 to 1997 represented here. What a powerful moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And I think what's super great about this is that we all have had different experiences as SLPs and also being queer and, you know, that there's that intersectionality of being an SLP and being queer. I'm interested to hear about how, how does that feel to each of us? Cause we all have had such different experiences just taking our ages alone. Mm-hmm. So I'm really psyched about that.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I guess, one of the first things we want to talk about then would be our experiences, because before you become an SLP, you're a grad student, and right. Uh, Alisa right now is going through that experience. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> you can do it, Alisa, yeah. at the
0: tail end of it. Uh, at the tail end, <laughs> you're almost there. You know, I can honestly say that we've all been there. You can make it. Yes, I'm already in debt, so I have to finish. <laughs> 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 oh right? Choose right? <laughs> really, words. Let's start with Jim. Remind us what years you were in grad school, and then we can just kind of like go over what that was like for you. Uh,
2: Yeah. And it was so long ago that I have to remember what years they were. Uh, (laughs) um, I've been out of graduate school for 25 years. So when was I in graduate school? Sometime in the 90s. Right?
1: Now you're asking me to math. Um, <laughs> you know, do math for speech people.
2: <laughs>
1: it's mid-90s, maybe?
2: Mid-90s. Yeah, mid-90s. I was in graduate school in the mid-90s. So, I mean, keep in mind, I was in graduate school in San Francisco. So we got to think about location. It may not have been as repressive as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing with me is that before I was in graduate school, I was kind of like a free-floating, freaky poet artist person. So I was accepted in graduate school. No problem. I was like being gay. I was like one of the girls because it's full full of women. (laughs) What I do realize with time is graduate school taught me that I had to tone it down. It was fine in class. It was fine on campus. But I had like really long hair and I wore fuchsia scarves and I had huge earrings. I used to make my own (laughs) earrings. I used to make earrings out of everything. I had this, I remember, I was remembering this earring I had, it was made out of a a squeaky toy steak. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's the best thing world. <laughs> Long hair, and in class, one of my teachers was a drag queen. I mean, he didn't come to class in drag, but it was San Francisco, so that was fine. But because before I got that's this degree, I got a degree in poetry and lived in Europe and did other stuff. But what I realized: no way are you going to go to work looking like that. So you know, once it came time to do internships in schools and hospitals, you know, take the penguin out of your ear.
3: Oh, <laughs> no. Poor
2: Peggy. And it's kind of weird because I realized, you know, 25 years, I've adapted to that. I mean, I look normal, so to speak. You would not know that by, by meeting me and looking at me now. I blend in. And one thing I am seeing with younger people is they don't feel like they have to. At least in San Francisco, they don't. Teachers have visible tattoos. Teachers and speech people have visible piercings. You express yourself the way you want to. So I was accepted in graduate school as, as, as gay. And I was just transitioning from bisexual to gay in my own identity. But, you know, I certainly was very flamboyant at that period of my life. That wasn't a problem, but I think I learned, not necessarily directly, but I learned, you know, Tone it down if you want to, quote, be a professional. Because up until that time in my life, I was not any kind of a professional. I was like a poet. You know what I mean? So that was my story.
1: Just like thinking about like the professionalism and, you know, what is a professional? You know, why can't scarves and penguin earrings be professional? I find that very interesting. It sounds like that impacted your life, like throughout your life. Right. Like that poet in you sort of got, I don't want to say squashed a little bit, but it almost sounds like it from where I'm sitting, you know, that, you know, maybe someone didn't come out and say compartmentalized. It. Yeah. Compartmentalized. Do you wear it's your fancy there, scarves? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. No, that's true. My image has toned down. It has, But some of that could be other reasons, could be aging, et cetera. But at least my life became compartmentalized. And that's something I'm really rethinking as I'm older now. Like, you can't bring your whole self to work. You bring the acceptable parts of yourself to work. Now I'm starting to challenge that as I get older.
1: To me, the mid-90s weren't that long ago. I don't know about Hector. (laughs) uh, To me, I'm like, oh, yeah, the mid-90s weren't that long ago. Um, (laughs) And I just think, you know... Compartmentalization was something that you know I can relate to because it was some some similar sort of things um, for me, and I just I'm s- so hopeful for the future that 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 won't be a thing anymore mm-hmm. that we won't have to hide ourselves or you know only bring part of ourselves to our job because there's so much beauty in our entire selves. So you said in class it was all right. So were you, you know, were you feeling like you needed to compartmentalize more in your clinic, you know, your internships? Internships,
2: school, internships, and then jobs. Yeah, not even at first in the clinics at state. Very
0: interesting. What about you, Natalie?
1: I went to Massachusetts General Hospital, Institute of Health Professions. I will call it the IHP because that's how people refer to it. And I was there from 2001 to 2003. A little bit about me before that time, I was a small town girl who grew up in a small town in upstate New York. And I went to a small upstate New York college for undergrad. And then I got to Boston. And I was like super overwhelmed just being in a different environment. And I don't see this as much today when when I'm in a small town. But back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was like there were Queer organizations and and groups, but it was more low key than I think probably they are nowadays. I don't know. The young ones can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't like I I'd never experienced people really being out in a professional setting. So I come to the IHP and I'm so overwhelmed by the city thing. And the first person I meet and I don't have permission to use her name, so I'm not going to use it. But I had a classmate who came, we were having like a mixer and she came to, over to me and she sat down and she says, Hey, <laughs> so I hear you're in the family. <laughs> 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 I was like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so back in the day, I don't know if, if Jim, if you've experienced this, maybe less so in younger generations, but a lot of times people were rejected by their biological families. I'm sure it still happens today. I know it still happens today, but the LGBT community became your family. So it was colloquially referred to as the family. Mm -hmm. And this person taught me so much about... The LGBT community because I just was very green and naive, and we did a presentation for our whole class on what it's like to come out. Do you guys mind if I tell you what we did? Go for it because it's awesome. Okay. So, and this is her her thing. Like I was just like there. Okay, I'm gonna follow along. Um, <laughs> but she had everyone in the class write down the five most important things in their life. And then after they did that, she said, "All right, now turn to your neighbor and have a conversation with them, but you can't talk about anything on your list." And if you can probably imagine that the conversations were yeah. very boring, yeah. and probably you know, and the, just there wasn't much to talk about. And then so she let that go on for an uncomfortable amount of time, and then she she said to the group, well, "That's what it feels like to be in the closet every day." Ooh. and it was. It was so powerful. And like things like that, I think really shaped me. And also, I had a professor who came out to my entire class my first semester. And that was also very powerful for me. And so I think I actually learned to be out more <laughs> than I was because I didn't feel like there was anything to be ashamed of. And, you know, the same professor who came out to us attended Pride with us. And we actually marched in the Pride parade in Pride 2002. I think that was the one where I met AC or was it 2003? I don't know, anyway, my grad school experience was one of feeling embraced by the profession. I never really felt like my lesbianism was an issue, and not even in my internships, but also like I, I didn't necessarily feel confident enough to be out. It's interesting, Jim, when you're talking about how like people nowadays have tattoos and piercings and stuff. It's like I was in grad school when I got my nose pierced and I still have it to this day. And it's just like part of my face, like I could just never imagine. So I think around, you know, the early 2000s was when people started to sort of have these little expressions that were coming out and it didn't feel like too much. I don't have any tattoos though. I'm chicken about like, <laughs> a piercing. is just like they jab you and you're done. But like, you it's know, a, tattoos, a long scary. Yeah. <laughs> Hector could talk about that. Pain. And so with that, Hector, tell us about your grad school experience. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I was, I, I'm realizing more and more that it, it might not even necessarily be like a generational thing, but it definitely is based off of where you go to grad school that impacts mm -hmm. greatly because just like we went from San Francisco to Boston. I went to grad school from 2014 to 2016 in Spokane, Washington. So this is like Eastern Washington, very different demographic than what Seattle is like.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Spokane's a small city, but it's, Definitely more conservative.
0: Definitely more conservative. Um, The program that I went to is a combined program between two colleges. It's called the UPCD. So that's the University Programs in Communication Disorders between Washington State University and Eastern Washington University. So we had a combined cohort of like 50 people, 48 women, two men, one gay guy. And then also being brown. And a person of color in that area of the state as well is not a common thing either. So my experience, um, I was very guarded going into it. And I knew it because even from the get-go, like our orientation where we met everybody, there was a dress code. So they wanted us to dress professionally for that. So a uh, for, quote, men... It was button up shirt and slacks. And then, you know, and so, and I remember specifically a grad advisor telling me that like how they thought that was the first impression that they got from us. And to, to tell what kind of uh, clinicians we would be based off of how we dressed to that orientation. And then thinking about it now, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like this is so backwards. Um, but it was definitely a thing that was, you know, spoken about. As far as coming out, I did come out to my classmates, the ones, you know, like everybody knew because they just, it was being the only male. I mean, that was, you know, gay. And then on top of that, being a person of color, like I stood out very much so in that cohort. Nowadays, I can't even tell you who was in that group, but I know I stood out. I only came out to a, a few professors. They were both cis females and they were both my direct supervisors i didn't come out to any male professors didn't feel comfortable coming out to any male professors either i'm sure they assumed one way or the other uh because as to be honest most male you know you professionals in this field get questioned whether or not they are gay that's the assumption especially if you don't work in the medical like uh, and so it's interesting to have that perspective as well but yes it was a, a definitely a Interesting experience. My, <laughs> I think one of the tells for tells in quotations was um, my grad defense project was on transgender voice or gender affirming voice therapy, and so um, <laughs> I was like, "Well, I'm pushing this," you know, <laughs> like in Spokane, <laughs> um, and it was great. And my supervisor was all about it and very supportive. Um, so I, w- I felt it was great to have that relationship with my immediate mentors. If I had a hard, I I, I don't think I would be the same clinician I am today. If I had, say, one of the male mentors, I don't think I would have, I wouldn't be confident in my skills. I don't even know if I'd be in the field, you know, like if knowing that, to be honest, just from stories I'd heard from other people who had those supervisors, but also, you know, you just hear horror stories about males in academia and the chauvinism that exists like our field, for example, is very female dominated in the as clinicians, but in the actual like academic world, there's a lot of males there, <laughs> um, and not as many. Yeah, you know, so there's a reality there um, that exists. Um, so yeah, I had that as far as everything else and, and being out in um, internships. That was, I think, similar to Jim. I just didn't feel the need to. I, I just showed up. One, um, I I had a different experience because of uh, my physicality um, that I I dress differently to not um, like I wear bigger shirts, I wear uh, cardigan sweaters so that people don't notice my body. I know it sounds so weird thinking that, but, <laughs> but like I try to like fashion myself to to look like Mister Rogers. That way, I'm taking more seriously. Oftentimes, like. They would assume when I was doing like my medical rotation that I was a physical therapist because I, you know, looked physically or capable. <laughs> um, so I, it it was one of those weird like this is so weird this is I'm like I'm the speech guy you know and they're like no you're the physical therapist and I'm like why and you know and so I just started dressing to tone down what I looked like because of that barrier because um, I wanted to be credible I wanted people to talk to me about like my students and my clients and not, you know, cool how big my arms were, you know, like that's such a, yeah. <laughs> and your professionalism.
1: Well, and, yeah. Go ahead. And I just like, I'm just noticing the, you know, the parallels between Jim's and Hector's experiences that, you know, both of you felt the need to tone down who you were to fit into the profession right? Uh, and I don't know if that's you know being um you know maybe just being a male in this profession you're going to stand out more but also you know being a gay man in this profession and just feeling like do, I mean did you feel like it was something like needing to be under the radar or like what was sort of going through your mind when you started to go through these transformations of toning it down
0: I know for me, it was I wanted to I don't, I didn't want people to question my credibility as a as an ex- uh-huh. expert in my field and or as a professional. So I knew that as soon as you started talking about what I looked like, it and I was I was hyper aware that, like, I'm already a male in this field and I work with children, you know. So there's that piece of it that I was like, if there's anything else that takes away from that, that possibly puts me at risk, I want to tone that down. And I hate thinking that way, but that's the reality of the situation that goes in my brain is how can I make myself look like I am not a threat and that I am just a professional. And I think about Mr. Rogers (laughs) immediately, you know, Uh, but that's what I shape myself after. Yeah.
1: Now I have the, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood song in my head. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Jim? Yeah. Well,
3: you know what I relate
1: it
2: to, and maybe it's because I'm the old one, but I connect that to being born in a very homophobic time when there was a lot of also, you know, my parents were homophobic too. The very early imprint of feeling like something is unacceptable about me, even before I knew that I was gay. I think like really early shame and uh, just a feeling that in order to survive in this world, whether it's to be seen as a professional or to be loved or to be able to, to be taken care of. But to survive in this world, you've got to compromise who you are. You've got to put the face on for the world that will, that will accept you and let you survive. So I don't know that during graduate school, it was that conscious. It was somewhat conscious because I remember, and I really liked the person I did my school internship with, but I did wear a penguin earring when I met her. And she's like, you know, when you come... You're not going to be able to wear that earring because the kids won't take you seriously. That was the message. Um, so, yeah, the, it's not just specific to the profession. I feel like what we're talking about is my relationship to the world. And yeah, even at my age, I'm still untangling that and making choices about how to be more authentic mm-hmm. and less compromised.
0: I think you really tap into something that is very common, especially with cis, um, like just statistically uh, when it comes to like cis gay males, um, there's this overcompensation. Like you see a lot of like high level professional men that are gay because they're trying to like find value and find their worth through other means because the world tells them that being gay, takes away from that inherent value. Um, and so we, we try to be more, we try to like supersede any sort of thing that might take away from our credibility and value. And so I, I'm curious, is that common in the lesbian community? Does that perspective even exist?
1: I think, you know, when it comes to the profession of speech language pathology, I hit, I tick a lot of the boxes for the typical speech pathologist, right? I'm white, I'm middle-class, I, you know... And I'm feminine, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not very masculine in in my appearance. Um, you know, the only thing that doesn't really tick a box is that I'm a lesbian. And so I think that when you talk about flying under the radar in a lot of situations, I've been able to fly under the radar. And it's my choice, whether or not people know that I'm a lesbian, if, if I don't want them to know, then I have the privilege and I under, do understand that it's a privilege to fly under that radar. So talking about my own experience, I don't, I don't know if I would be a great example. I guess that's all I really have to say is that I've, I've sort of been spared mm-hmm. from that, which, you know, which is, I think a, It really sucks. I don't know how else to say it Um, because it shouldn't be that way. I don't think anyone needs should should have to feel like they need to fly under the radar or tone it down or looking less, you know, being less in order to also be a professional.
0: Right. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that we're half an hour in and we haven't even asked Alisa <laughs> about her. <laughs> She's sitting here so quietly right. and so politely. Right, Alisa, could you tell us about, about you and your grad school experience? Take uh, it away.
4: Um, yeah. So I am currently a student at the IHP, the same school that Natalie uh, went to. And I was, I'm glad I got to go last cause I got some time to reflect and think about things. And, um, <laughs> Coming to the IHP, so I'm from New York and my family are immigrants and very homophobic. I'm not actually out to them. I'm not sure exactly when that will happen, if it will happen. I'm kind of ish lucky that I'm in a heteronormative appearing relationship, but both me and my partner are queer individuals. So it's just not a question that really comes up. But coming out was really liberating in that how uneventful it was. I don't even exactly remember. I was talking about something in class and something came up and I was like, well, like as a queer individual, this is like what my, as well how I feel about it. This is how I, blah, blah. and it was like to the full core. And I sat there, and I was like, wait, I just did a thing. And this, it kind of seemed like no one really cared. I also was saying earlier that COVID cut a lot of stuff short. So I only had the semester and half in person. So if someone had an issue with it, they didn't have enough time to tell me that they had an issue with it. Um, Also, I was on the e-board for the LGBTQ plus club on campus. I was uh, a co-president. I actually just took a step back from that recently because I'm tired. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, What? I'm tired in grad school? (laughs) And as far as it's been in like actual grad school, it's just, it's just been a thing. It's, it's It hasn't really been a huge topic of conversation, which is I feel like how it should be. It shouldn't have to be this big, like, blah. blah, blah. So it was really great, like, how eventful it was. And COVID made things really weird because going back home, I remember when I went back home, I was like, oh, wait, I'm back in the closet again. Mm-hmm. So that was a really weird experience, like, to go back home and just not feel good about myself anymore. But in terms of how it's been with externships it just hasn't really come up i honestly feel like being a black individual has affected me a lot more i see myself like what you hector and you are talking about with the way you present yourself a lot of the time how i speak is i I really put a lot of thought into that because every now and then a little bit of my AE slips out and I always feel super self-conscious about it. I'm always like, oh, they're gonna think less of me. Oh, they're gonna think that I'm not good enough. Oh blah blah blah. All this other stuff. And also working with patients. I wanna work with elderly people. I want I love I love my adults. Like I really like them, but a lot of like a lot of my experience have, has been white older adults. And I have felt like I had to overcompensate in order for them to see that I am good enough. But it's just kind of my clearness is just kind of like, this is an aspect that I kind of don't really feel like dealing with in my professional life, because I already have to deal with this other aspect. If it comes up, if someone like asks me, like, I'm not gonna lie to them, because I have like, no reason to, if you don't like me because of who I am, then I don't really want to hang out with you anyway. But it's just kind of one of those things, like, I have a lot going on right now. So I'm just gonna put this over here, because I can't really hide that I'm black.
0: Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that gets that gets into something that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast about intersectionality and people being tired. And Hector's, you know, been very honest with me over time and in our relationship together about, you know, being a person of color and being tired. You know, hearing you talk about how, you know, being being a black person is already enough. Right. And it's just like you, you don't can't you, you don't have the space to even think about another thing on your plate. The past year has just been an awakening for me. The year that Hector and I have been doing this podcast, because I think that that was something I had to learn was that that people get tired, like it's exhausting. So thank you for sharing that. And I I just also wanted to note that you, you mentioned that you were in the um, LGBT student group at the IHP and. I'm so excited that it was, that it's there because when I was in school, it wasn't, there was no LGBT student group. Oh yeah. Mm
4: -hmm. Um, It was wonderful being able to connect with other people in the community because my undergrad experience, I just felt like they weren't as inviting as I would have liked to be. And I, from what moving leaving and from what i've talked to other people i found out is because there was someone in their group that they were very very protective over and so they were like we don't really want we need to vet you before we let you in and i guess i the vetting process is a little bit too much for me so i was like i'm just like not gonna do this right now but i didn't realize it at the time but just being able to interact with the queer community has been so empowering. It's been wonderful. Just be like, Hey, like you understand my experience. I don't have to explain what this is to you. You just get it. And you vibe with me. And that's, that's been a wonderful experience.
1: Yeah. I think coming together and, and having support and, seeing that you're not the only one experiencing something is so powerful, you know, and I've had the, I had a similar experience at the IHP for the first time, really meeting people that I felt like I could connect with as an SLP and as a queer person. And it's just, it was very important to my development as an SLP.
0: I think it reminds me a lot of that exercise you talked about, Natalie, of writing down and actually like, The podcast and and actually having student groups and even just having professionals, we actually get to talk about those things now, you know, and so it's one of those things where we don't have to have it hidden in a, uh, you know, a piece of paper that we can't talk about. The conversation is actually, you know, important to us, but also like inclusive of us as well. Um, and so finally, we you know, I'm so glad this is happening for you, Alisa, and, and others that are, you know, going through it right now. Y'all have the intersectionality of being COVID. <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: like that just adds another layer to your grad school experience, I'm sure. I mean, so a little bit, I, I can sort of relate. It's different, but I started my graduate program at the same time that 9-11 happened. Ooh. And that was very, it, that crisis was very um, meaningful. You know, we became a very cohesive group because of that, like because it was just such a trauma. And I wonder, Elisa, do have you had this, a similar experience with COVID or is it had, has it been different because of the separation? I'm, I feel like the friends who I made beforehand, like we've definitely have gotten a little bit closer,
4: but I would not say I have gotten closer with the rest of my cohort. I feel very lucky, though, that we did have about a semester and a half on campus. I feel really bad for the first years currently cuz they haven't really been able to meet people I when I moved to Boston I didn't know anyone I was like I'm not going to make any friends no one's going to like me I'm going to be lonely forever and now I have a really good group of friends that I'm really happy for and just covid it has helped us get a little bit closer cuz we have to help each other
0: out right <laughs> well we basically you know went through the went through the generations as far as like grad school goes
1: yeah We've all we've all been through different but similar journeys.
0: There's little bits, you know, that have gone exceedingly well and have changed um, as we had we hoped it would. For others, certain things are still the same, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, and continue to need work. But I think it, it sounds like there's movement. Um, I think a lot of what I'm realizing more and more. I mean, again, I haven't been to boston personally but like just having had like that one outlier experience of being from like the spokane person (laughs) like where you go to grad school significantly impacts your grad experience
1: because the cult the culture of the of this where you're located it it's part of that school culture right for sure
0: but we talked about the most current you know, generations, but we know when it comes to history, there's always something, you know, and so I know Jim has a lot of, of knowledge to share. And we wanted him to talk about something specific. So Jim, um, if you're comfortable taking the, the reins, yeah, go ahead and <laughs> do so. Yeah, I could
2: do that, but I'm also inviting you to uh, jump in, interrupt me, connect it to your own life oh, so that I'm not just giving you <laughs> hot dog. Um, we'll do that. The project they're referring to is I wrote a book that is not yet published. Um, It's a YA biography in verse about the life of Harry Hay. And Harry Hay was one of the early gay rights activists, the founders of the early gay rights movement, long before there was a queer rights movement. And I also knew him towards the end of his life when he was in his 90s. So, you know, part of our intergenerational podcast here is we're, we're bringing in the ancestors. We're bringing in the people who were here before me. You know maybe I should sing the song that goes with the book and then we can talk more. How does that sound?
4: Yeah. All yes. right. It sounds
0: great.
2: <laughs> the book will talk a little bit about, you know, the song will get a little bit into the content and then we can expand from there. So, the song is called Who Are We? because it's based on the questions that he always asked.
3: So, Who are we, where have we been, and why are we here, and why has the repression against us been so severe? Back in 1948, Harry wrote a proposal. With an idea that would help change the world. People didn't see gays as a group back then. We were mainly seen as sick sinners or criminal outcasts in an underground world. Who are we, where have we been, and why are we here? And why has the repression against us been so severe when Harry and his friends formed the Mattachine? It was illegal for us to gather. Most people use pseudonyms as they held hands in secret basements. Harry started asking these questions and until he died, he kept on asking them. Yeah. Who are we? Where have we been? And why are we here? And why has the repression against us been so severe? It's in part thanks to Harry we're as free as we are. Some people still hate us, but we've come a long, long way. Still being gay carries a death sentence in 34 countries. We gotta keep pushing for change as we explore these questions today. Um. Who are we, where have we been, and why are we here? And why has the repression against us been so severe.
2: So that's the song that goes with the book, but to kind of connect that in, like,
1: so that's 1940s. Right. Yay. <laughs> Our first queer SLP musical number. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a song for the podcast. So that's taking us back to the 40s, right? And and he came out of the Communist Party. So a lot of people don't realize the Communist roots of the of the gay rights movement. Um, and though even though. I mean, now communism is like a bad word and horrible things have been done all over the world in the name of communism. But in the 20s, 30s, 40s, the American Communist Party was like fighting against Hitler and fighting for the 40 hour work week and lots of things that we have and take for granted. He also left the party but he learned his political organizing skills in the communist party and brought them over to found the gay rights movement. That's not history most people know. Also, it was first called the Madison Foundation and then when it became popular, it, he got kicked out as did all the early founders because they were too radical because they had been communists and they had they their vision of like there was no such thing as a gay community at that point. Like we take that for granted now, but it didn't exist. Their vision of a gay community and gays as a minority that could fight for civil rights. Once the group got big, they got rid of all the early radical roots. The Mattachine Society, rather than the Madison Foundation, kicked them all out. And their whole thing was not gays as a separate group, gays as belonging and fitting in. And you had to fit in. No femme men were allowed in the Madison Society. They kicked them out. They wanted everybody to wear suits, be acceptable, blend in as good Americans, you know.
1: Well, and I I think, you know, it, and also like women were expected to wear dresses. Right. They were. Things they like were. that. Right. So, Jim, I have a question. Um, Can you explain a little bit about what the Mattachine Society was like? What what would what did they stand for?
2: So early, the Mattachine Foundation, the idea before it became this society was to to identify. It sounds like it identified gays as a group because it was a mental illness. At that time, right? Until 1973, it was seen as being mentally ill. It was very illegal. So you could be arrested just for being gay. And for the church, it was a sin. There was no such thing as like a group of people who got together as a community. So it was both to define it as a minority group and like uplifting sections where people came together and learn to love each other, learn to love themselves, talk. But those sessions, they were—they used pseudonyms. They had a secret cell structure that they got from the Communist Party so that if somebody got arrested, they couldn't turn in the rest of the group. They took the phones off the hook. They covered the windows, they hid in basements just to have a conversation. Like That's the early days. When it got big is because there was a case of entrapment, which is when the police... Tr- like uh, undercover policemen used to come on to gay men and then arrest them, sometimes even when they didn't say yes. And that happened to a member of the Manishing Society and they fought it. And it was the first gay court case to win in the early 50s because the, the police officer was caught lying on the stand. And then the group got very big. But when it got big, it got more conventional. So those people were not trying to be a separate group that didn't come, that returns around, you know, right before Stonewall, but the the seeds were planted much earlier then they just wanted to fit in. They wanted to belong and be respectable Americans with suits and ties. And, you know, there's other groups. There's not much known about them, but I wish that there was there at the same time. There was a group, there was a group called the Knights of the clock, which was an interracial gay group. It didn't last, but like, these seeds were all getting planted back then. Um the early so when the Manashin Society was popular, like the early daughters of Belitus, it would have been to be accepted, to belong, you know, not to be a distinct group. That returns in the sixties, but that doesn't happen in the fifties.
1: Well and I, my understanding is that in the 40s and 50s and, you know, during uh, the Red Scare and then they also had the Lavender Scare, right, where you could be arrested, you could lose your job, you could lose your housing, you could lose everything if you mm-hmm. were outed, right?
3: Oh, yeah. You can
2: lose the frontal lobe of your brain. I mean, they gave people lobotomies. They did all kinds of things. Yeah. And Harry had to go in front of the the House on American Activities Committee. He was called before them. So yeah, it was a dangerous time. So really, you know, I don't mean to trash the more conventional Madison that arose. Um, that was a very radical idea in the fifties that you could belong and be acceptable. It was just more radical that you would be a separate group. <laughs> like people were not ready for that. So yeah. The other thing I would bring and this I think can help tie us into current thinking. I mean, you you can't say that the manishing itself was an intersectional group. They were open to men and women and few women belonged to it. They re, Women really got their group when they formed the, the Daughters of Bilitis a few years later. Uh, and I think it's because lesbians and gays didn't mix very much in the 50s and they had very separate issues. Lesbians weren't getting arrested by the police, for example. And so the group was male-centric, But his politics, even though the word intersectional didn't exist, have always been intersectional. And there's a documentary about his life. And he was talking about like, if I found some kind of like elitist gay that only cared about gay rights, I didn't want to I didn't want to date him. They had to care about like racial equality and the working class and everything else. So as a person, he came out of the labor movement. You know, and he, when you track his whole life beyond the Mattachine Society, was involved with all kinds of stuff, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, all kinds of things to save Native American land, Native American rights. I mean, he was an intersectional thinker for a more just world long before that word came up. But really, that kind of thinking has been around for a long, long time before the word. I remember buying and reading a book that I think came out before two of you were born, Because I remember when Angela Davis's book, Women, Race, and Class, came out in the 1980s and reading it. And I mean, there's intersectionality right there, right? Because you're talking about not just being a woman and being a feminist, but being black and being poor. And how does all of that relate? So we have lots of intersectional ancestors before the word was coined. But now it's really in the forefront of discussion.
0: Well, I have a question. My question is like again. This is like this is a cross generational question because I think about this history that you know we're talking about Henry Hay. We're talking about the Lavender Scare. I think about like for example, my generation, the millennial LGBTQ generation. Our media history almost like we've talked about. It stop. It starts at Stonewall and then it stops. Like big point is the AIDS you know epidemic and then gay marriage right like that's kind of like those mm-hmm. big points I'm curious to know for all of you like it, it feels like Jim you have this wide breadth of history that you are aware of because of your generational you know like experience like Alisa, what is your and Natalie what are your like understandings of history prior to this conversation you know like of course I learned a lot more because of you know and so that was my my privilege of getting to be exposed to that but Elisa like for you as a younger generation like is there like do you all go past AIDS or does it start there for you
4: I knew of the lavender scare because I wrote a paper on that my freshman year of college I was taking a class about the American dream and I wrote a paper about the queer American dream and like how we've been persecuted and everything. So I know about the lavender scare, but honestly, as far as what I have learned through like school, it's just like stonewall. Yay. Let's move on.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, a, a, a lot of that is the same for me. I have been blessed in my life to have a few, um, el- elderly, older gentlemen who have lost loved ones to the AIDS crisis and have shared their stories with me. So I think that I'm I'm very aware of that. You know, I, I have a, a friend who told me that his first partner who died of AIDS, you know, was treated horribly, you know, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was called the gay cancer back then. At that time, people, you know it was just people were so sick and it seemed like n- no one in main, the mainstream cared if they lived or died i was a kid in the 80s i just i remember hearing about it hearing about hiv and aids but all i really knew about it was that it killed people you know, I think my parents protected us from knowing anything about that really. And but as when I got older and started meeting people from other generations and, and hearing their stories, I, I know how devastating that was to our community. And I think Jim, I think you were the one who said that, you know, we've lost a generation of elders to to HIV and AIDS. And so there's a piece of our history that isn't as rich because those people are, are gone you know, that makes me so heartbroken. And I'm just, I feel so blessed that I have a few really great folks in my life from that generation that did survive um, to to pass on what, you know, what that was for them. And then, you know, as far as gay marriage is concerned, I mean, I think that that's probably a, it's a cause that happened during my formative lesbian years you know I, mean, it's just so, I don't know how else to put it right you know, I, I feel the same way i feel the same way yeah it started to become an issue in my 20s at least i started to hear about it and you know jim when you were talking about how you know how in the 40s and 50s people you know when they started the Madachine society right people wanted to become more mainstream i sort of feel like the gay marriage issue became we're just like you you know gay mm-hmm. gay people are just like you um which I don't necessarily agree with. That was kind of the message. You know, my first marriage was not legal. You know, I was married, my first marriage, I was married in 2011 and we went to Canada, but it wasn't recognized in the United States for four years. And just to kind of live through a time where, you know, and people were debating hotly over this topic while I was marrying the person that I loved, I I feel like, you know, you can, you can either view it as something really horrible or something that makes you stronger. (laughs) And I, I choose to, to let it make me be stronger and say, you know, it didn't matter what people said or what people thought, you know, she was my wife in my heart, you know, that made it bearable to have people debating my, my love and my relationship publicly, Um, and saying horrible things about, you know, my love. And, you know, so I think that that there's that really impacted me, too. Um, You know, and as far as, you know, before that, you know, before the AIDS crisis, before Stonewall, I think just recently just talking to, to you, Jim, is really when I started to really look at the history of of the LGBT community and realizing that it, it didn't start with Stonewall. It started so far before that. Um, and the last thing I'm going to say, cause I know I'm, I'm going on and on is that another thing that popped into my head about the Mattachine foundation, changing to the society and wanting to blend in and not wanting to kind of muddy the waters reminded me of I, I Andrea and I just started watching this um documentary called Pride on Hulu. Amazing. Check it out. But on their episode about the 1970s, they were talking about Betty Friedan and how, you know, who was a famous feminist at the time. She didn't want to include lesbians in the feminist movement because she felt like then people would say that the feminist movement was some kind of lesbian propaganda. And
3: mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know,
1: menace. yes. The lavender menace. I was like, oh my gosh. I want to, if I'm going to get a tattoo someday, it's going to say lavender men- <laughs> menace right there on my arm. And just like, <laughs> because I was like, Oh my goodness. And it's just like, why, you know, why do mm-hmm. people get this idea in their head? Maybe I'm naive. Anyway. That's no. my
0: experience. <laughs> it's a good one because I think it leads to my follow-up question. Because if again, not to put like extremes on anything, Natalie and I are like right in the middle, so they that's us. But thinking about like where Jim and Alyssa are in your lives, like what are your hopes for like history and its and its presence in our community? Like how do we make sure that we do honor our ancestors for future generations and make them aware? while also like feeling that we're being inclusive and respectful to them because the queer community is known for not, for not celebrating people of a certain age, you know, like there's literally the term gay death that <laughs> exists within the LGBTQ plus community. I was told that at at 30 <laughs> is your gay death.
1: That is oh my term, okay. And so, it's real. Uh, this is so, this is something that's new to me because I don't think that lesbians necessarily talk about each other in this way. So, if I'm understanding this correctly, the gay death is like now you're just too old and you're put out to pasture. Is that sort of the idea?
0: Yes, like it's when you turn 30. Uh- I learned I learned about this as a high schooler before I even came out. Somebody said, you know, you're you're young, you're fine, but once you turn 30, you reach gay death, and. I learned, like, again, even my partner right now, he's like, yeah, he's all the way from the, he's from Pennsylvania. Like, they definitely, it's a thing. It's, it exists. It's a, a known term within the gay community, but basically, the way that the gay community treats their elders is, and, and by elders, I mean medically geriatric, right? 35 and up. <laughs> like, it's the same thing. Like, you are no longer of value. And so I would love, I know. So it makes sense why our history is also not valued because we don't look to that, you know? And so I wondering how can we, what are our hopes maybe as a final thought, even of like moving forward as a, as a community, how do we even honor that? But also how do we make sure that that information is passed forward because it's important and necessary, of course, um, so thoughts.
1: Should we should we go from from Jim to me to Hector to Elisa? Go th- through the generations again. Final thoughts.
0: I, I'm fine on that. I'm okay are. with that too. Yeah. Jim.
3: Sure.
1: I mean, You well, okay with going first.
3: Going first? No, go for there Jim. is life <laughs> after <laughs> death. Okay. There's a lot of life after
2: death.
4: There's I love a lot
2: that. Of people out there with alternative mindsets and you can thrive in the land of the dead. Don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking intersectionally, this is more of a gay male issue than it is a lesbian issue, right? So that's right. just think, yeah. okay. Um I mean, I'm very actually very, very hopeful. And I would again, thinking intersectionally, it's not just gay history that we want to pass on in a better way. It's all history. You know, I mean, the civil rights movement didn't start with Rosa Parks. It didn't end racism, etc., etc., etc. So uh, thinking about our own history, I think we want to talk about all, all social justice history can go back further in time to show the seeds, can show that these Heroic individuals, if you want to put them that way, even Harry, they didn't single handedly do this. They were part of a movement with many people that we will never know. And it's not simple like that. Things don't end. History's not over. We're living it. And we're not done. We're not done. Very obviously, we're not done with racism. Um, We're not done with homophobia. I mean, especially we're not done with transphobia when you think of all the people who are being killed, all the trans people. So, But I'm very hopeful because I think that you can write a lot of kids books and teenager books and educate the youth about queer history. And adults can choose to learn about it. And you can find out about it if you care. I, I mean, I, I, I actually, I'm hopeful about that. I think that we can, we can spread that knowledge. And I'm hoping, I mean, I love what you're doing right now because I love just even intersectional, intergenerational conversations, I think are good. So that's my thoughts.
1: All right. I guess that means I'm next. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like you, Jim, I'm hopeful. I feel like especially this journey so far with the queer SLP has been a journey to learning to honor and value our history, but also our present and our future. And I love what you said about, you know, that it's not over and that, you know, it's, I feel like as time goes on, we build upon what our ancestors have done for us. They took risks that were, you know, life-changing for us. And I hope that in my own way, um, by educating myself and by being out here talking about, um, queer issues that, you know, I can be a part of the change. And I think that that, you know, that's where the individual's responsibility comes in. You know, I think the, the future is, can be bright. Um, we have a lot of challenges. There are a lot of things that need to change in our culture, in our society. Um, But I believe in the ability of people to change and to grow, even in my lifetime, in my 42 years, I have seen so much change in attitudes. And, you know, the one thing, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but so I recently moved back to upstate New York, and I hadn't lived here for 20 years. And going to my itty bitty small town, now, when I go to visit my mom, I see pride flags on people's porches. I see that the local community center is having a conversation about transphobia and homophobia. I mean, these were things that weren't even talked about in my little hometown when I was a kid. And that these things are being welcomed. These these things in a small town are being embraced, you know, shows me that that Change can happen and will continue to happen, but we need to continue to support each other and um, commit to growth. Hector, what Um, do you think? Final
0: thoughts? Yeah, final thoughts. Um, I would say very similar. Um, There's this one movie that I, I mean, there's so many little connections, of course, in the world, but um, there's this movie, I don't know if you ever watched it, but it's called Pay It Forward. Any of you watched that 2000, er, 2000 movie starring Helen I remember Hun. hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> it starred Helen, Helen Hunt and Haley Jo Osmond. But the, the whole idea is very similar to what I think our community requires. And something that the SLP, SLP community does really well is you pay it forward, whatever you, know, you have been taught. We, like, our field emphasizes mentorship so much. And I think we need a lot more mentorship in the queer community. I think um, the only way that we are going to be able to, to make sure that history continues to be taught, but also um, honored and respected, is you know, to share it and to make sure other people have a, a resource to collect it. Um, thankfully, we have technology and, and opportunities like the Queer SLP to gain this information. I mean, we are in a world of fast and people want things when they want it. Um, and so, you know, having books and having audio books and podcasts that just spread history and information are going to be what I think gets us moving this forward. As far as like my other hopes for the, the community, um, especially within our field, you know, my hope is that we start having a little bit more than just a one day, you know, in your multicultural (laughs) class about queer history, um, that we don't have more than just, that we understand that in your voice class, it's more than just a little paragraph that you might be working with a transgender client. Um, I'm hoping for all of that. So, you know, who knows? Um, But I think with more visibility, um, we can get there. Um, And I, you know, just, Having my our brief conversation with Elisa right now, I think they're that's happening. Um, you know, despite COVID, but you know, like, uh, <laughs> well, I think it. I think that's there's a lot of hope there. Um, thankfully, like all three of us are there. But like, let's let's pass it on to the current generation of soon to be SLBs, uh, SLPs, Bs. Oh, I just it's did a. Bees. I just. Oh my gosh! I just did <laughs> a voicing error. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the pattern.
4: But go ahead, Elisa. I was just thinking that I have not had a lot of ex- experiences or opportunities to talk with older people within the community. So this has been absolutely wonderful being able to hear different of perspectives and where we've come from. And I think that is something that would really be super helpful just being able to have these conversations with people who have been through what you're going through before you or even if it's not exactly the same thing cuz times are changing for the better thank goodness some things are still the same which is not that great but just knowing just being able to hear your your experiences has really helped me especially as I go into looking for a job and probably going to move and having kind of having to start over this whole process of coming out again yeah, that's been super helpful. And also, I, just social media. I feel like so much of what I have learned about so many different things have been scrolling through Instagram and just reading through different posts. And I feel like my generation, we don't, are, we're don't, a little bit lazy and we're tired of textbooks. So just being able to read through uh, a Reading through a social media post has been super helpful, and I've been really lucky to be a part of a multiple different DI initiatives, different talks presenting information to faculty and students at my at my school, and just knowing that they're available and just having them constantly available. So even if you don't go to like the first one or even like the fifth one, just know it's the sixth one that's about to happen. Maybe you'll go to the sixth one and you'll learn something about it. Um, So yeah, um, it's. I'm really helpful, especially, especially Natalie, you're talking about like how your town has changed and everything and just kind of find it wild how that's kind of thing is so, such a normal thing for me. Like it's not something that I really had to. And I'm so excited that it's normal <laughs> for you. Yeah.
1: just not, It's
4: great. I, I didn't really like figure out that I wasn't straight until I was like around 13. So I feel like that helped a little bit too. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's what I have to say. Yay.
1: Awesome. I'm feeling so warm and fuzzy you guys mm-hmm. and people. We
0: got and a people. free we got a free concert so like one.
1: Yeah. First <laughs> musical number. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when there, we got um yeah, so this is such a great opportunity for us. I'm hoping that this is an example that we can start spreading because not only do we have a cross-generational group of individuals, we have individuals from different ethnic backgrounds and different parts of, you know, like actually representing the the community and not just a panel of, you know, gay men and or lesbian women, you know, it's, we're a good mishmash here. So um, I'm grateful for that. So thank you.
1: Me too. And it's so interesting to just hear about the different experiences as SLPs and different experiences as baby SLPs in grad school and how things have really changed. And I really do feel, like you said, Elisa, that it's changed for the better. You know, there's still a long way to go in many ways, but I don't know what you just Mm -hmm. said about, about how certain things you just don't even have to think about. It just, it makes me so happy that you don't have to. And, and I just hope that future generations of SLPs and queer people and everybody will ev- have to think about those things even less, that it just will not be a thing that they worry about. Um, it's really what I want in my hopeful heart.
0: <laughs>
1: all
0: right, y'all. So I think that's about all the time that we have for today. So mm-hmm. thanks for joining us on the Queer SLP and stay tuned for next Episode, which is to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <I don't> <laughs> okay. okay. Bye. 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 Bye, everyone.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Queer SLP.
0: Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP.
0: If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye!